Howdy there, dear listeners. This is your host, Matt. Today, Lara and I spoke with Dr. Lee McIntyre. And I'll try to be professional uh, here. Let me channel my professional vibe. Dr. McIntyre is a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University and an instructor in ethics at Harvard Extension School. We talked about his book, Post-Truth. We talked about where climate denial and all kinds of fact denial comes from, the origins of it, his adventures amongst flat earthers, among other groups doing research on fact denial. So how do you break through with somebody to not really just change their beliefs, but to enlarge their circle of concern? And we talked about kind of what the ramifications of his research are for the West, but also other places, including authoritarian states like Russia and China. The, the goal of propaganda is to make you cynical. It's to make you feel like maybe there's no such thing as truth. First, just a few words about our programs. It's not uh, typical Texas. You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Let's dive into first asking if you watch the RNC. I did not watch the RNC, but I got some highlights on YouTube this morning and by watching uh, cable news. So what are your, so what are what your thoughts? Yeah. <laughs> fear. Okay. can mean a lot of things here, but I mean, it seems to me that the message of the RNC this year is that unless you vote for Trump, there will be vengeance and retribution and you will not be safe in your home because all of these angry hordes of people who don't like him will, will visit it on you know you living out in the suburbs and thinking that you're uh, safe the 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 weirdest part for me was why he invited the gun-toting couple from Missouri but i think that after watching a little bit of their speech i figured it out because what they said was what happened to us could happen to you and i thought what's that peaceful protesters walking by your house but that's not what people saw looking at the visual, looking at the visual of the protesters walking by and them standing out there with their guns. If you really were afraid and you weren't paying attention, it might look like, but for those guns, they would have been attacked. And I think that that was the message that they were sending, why they were at the RNC. You're not safe uh, without Trump to protect your guns, which you will need. Yeah, I definitely also picked up on just so much of this kind of insightful language. Vengeful mobs was the one that stood out to me. And my kind of bigger takeaway that left me particularly uneasy was that there seemed to be this attempt to rewrite history throughout the entire evening of positing that something that was entirely untrue, that they have facts to prove that Trump was not prepared to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic, but by using the sort of bolstering language that he was ready, that he was responsible, it, it left me deeply unsettled that for such a huge convention with such a wide audience, this is what was being spread and this is what's going to be like, you know, remembered. Yes. And, and I was just out for a for a walk with my dog thinking, in fact, about the, the RNC because I just watched a new show before we went. And it, it hit a chord with me for the science deniers that I've been working with, thinking that that is exactly what they're doing. They're trying to make people afraid because when people are afraid, evidence doesn't really matter. And it's just about identity. And so it seems to me that the tactics that the science deniers use to get you to be anti-vax or anti-climate change are the same tactics that they're using at the RNC to get you to vote for Trump. 
Well, that actually leads in perfectly to the book that you've written, The Scientific Attitude. I also recently read your Newsweek article on how to communicate with COVID-19 deniers. So let's get into that because in the last few years and however long, I'd, I'd love to hear your discussion on that, like attacks on science have become commonplace. Why is that? How have we gotten here? Yeah, how, how did we get here? I mean, attacks on science have existed for thousands of years. As long as science, scientists have been saying things that clash with something else that people want to believe, there, there have been attacks on science. The interesting part is that those attacks are usually selective. People don't attack science on things that they like, the things that don't clash with their beliefs. But all of a sudden, scientists become biased and evil when they say something, you know, on a topic that they they don't like. So what's happened is that science deniers have always been out there, but it's it's harder to maintain one of these fringe beliefs, like that we didn't go to the moon, say, uh, in the absence of reinforcement from other people. I remember when I was a kid, just being incredulous that. Some people believed we didn't go to the moon. I mean, we had just gone to the moon. How could people be doubting it? But this was before the internet. This was before people could go out there on the internet and find their group of people who believed the same thing that they did. And there, there are experiments in social psych which show that it is much easier to hold a fringe belief if other people hold that belief with you. And in fact, the, the peer pressure, the social pressure to believe the same things that the other people around you believe is so strong that you can deny reality even when it's right in front of your face. And uh, this was Solomon Ash's experiment on, uh, on peer pressure. And that works for scientific beliefs as well. It works for many other kinds of beliefs. And, and one disturbing thing to me is that it's not science denial has not only gotten worse, but the science denial tactics have morphed into our everyday beliefs about other things, things on which the factual evidence, again, is right in our face. So even while some of the beliefs are still fringe, the tactics are becoming mainstream. Belief in conspiracy theories, cherry picking evidence, disbelief in experts. These are all mainstream things now that, that you see people using to justify what they believe. And it, it's downright frightening because I've been studying science denial for about 20 years now, hoping to beat it back into a corner and it's just getting worse. In your Newsweek article, you mentioned that kind of the best ways to tackle this issue is communication and personal engagement. And I, I completely yes. agree. But at the same time, I see on Facebook people reaching out to family members and putting up articles saying, well, no, you're wrong. Here's like a fact checked article. Here's this. And I sometimes still yeah. don't see those things connecting. And it reminds me, you mentioned in your article, you went to the Flat Earth International Convention. And it's, yeah. it's like, it's like, yeah, like, how do you communicate with, with people when sometimes they're just a brick wall? They're not willing to let anything in. Well, the worst possible way to convince somebody is online because there's no human connection. And the model that people use sometimes to engage with a science denier is to what's called the information deficit model to treat it as if they just don't have the facts. And if you, they're just budding scientists and if you provide them with the right facts, they'll change their mind. But of course, that's not what denialist beliefs are about. They're not about evidence, they're about identity. So how do you break through with somebody to not really just change their beliefs, but change their identity? To, to, well, let me put it this way, to enlarge their circle of concern 
so that they know that the people who are have different beliefs are not monsters. At least that can begin to lead to an identity change. You have to do it face to face. And that kind of encounter doesn't always work. But I think it's the only thing that can work. You see trying to convince anybody in the comment section on an article or online, it's really just a shout fest. And what I found in my own journeys talking to science deniers is that they're much easier to deal with in person because there's something about that humanizes you and your beliefs to see them face to face. So so I went to the Flat Earth International Conference in Denver in 2018, and it was very odd (laughs) because there were 600 people there who believed one thing and I believed the other. And so to say I was outnumbered was, you know, ridiculous. But I, I couldn't convince any of them to change their mind, which is maybe not surprising because, as I said, Solomon Ash, right, they were reinforced by the venue and everybody else around them. But what I wanted to do was to try to gain their trust just by showing up, to try to engage with them one on one as many times as I could so that they would begin to hear uh, something other than the disinformation that they were hearing from the stage uh, at that venue. And it's especially important because at an event like that, and they have similar events for anti-vax and anti-climate change, they're recruitment events. People get radicalized through online uh, uh, YouTube videos, and then they come to a convention, and then it really kicks in as part of their identity. They make friends, sometimes they marry within the community then it's very hard for them to change their beliefs. And so I, you know, after studying science denial for 20 years from my desk, decided I'd better get out there and actually do this. And so I went and and talked to them face to face. I've also been to rural Pennsylvania to talk with coal miners about climate change. I I was wondering the extent to which, you know, you feel like uh, your book is du- is directed to a Western audience, or whether the phenomena you're describing are essentially universal. And if it's if it's the latter, then how does a place like Russia or even China fit into this? Where if we take Russia for example, I think that kind of the common an- the common response there would be that many of the things you're describing describing have been taking place for over a hundred years. And so, do you, do you believe that they've just kind of been exposed to this earlier? Where you know, I mean, these are people who just grew up and their government was brutally, brutally lying to them, you know, for a hundred years almost. And so, and it's continuing. And so kind of what, what are your thoughts on that? Would you say something different to them or basically just say that they started the process you're describing earlier? Yeah, disinformation is no stranger to politics around the world. Based on what I know, I would say that the problem with a totalitarian government is that the information comes from one source. I don't think that that necessarily makes people more gullible, though I think it makes them cynical. I think it makes them more likely to doubt. Now, maybe they're not going to say anything or they're going to profess to believe something that they don't actually believe because they don't want to you know, go to, to jail. But it does mean that, I mean, cynicism, Hannah Arendt talks about this a little bit in The Origins of Totalitarianism, that the, the goal of propaganda is to make you cynical. It's to make you feel like maybe there's no such thing as truth. Maybe nobody can know the truth. And when you give up on truth, then, you know, whatever the government says, well, you know, you just have to go along because that's maybe what's best for you. So it's really undercutting the idea that you can have objective beliefs, which is the opposite of what science is about. Now, interesting thing about science denial in particular, though, 
and I'll pick the example here of, of climate change, the US and the UK and Australia are the three worst nations for climate change denial. And one of the best is China, which is the worst polluter, worse than us. And that really kind of baked me for a while thinking about that. You know, are these tactics that I'm talking about, would they work on science denial, you know, in China or Russia or, you know, anywhere overseas? And I think about it. Is it really the same kind of science denial? Is it motivated by the same thing? Because what you've got, say, in China are people, who, you know, Chinese coal is by far the number one pollutant greenhouse gas in the world. It's something like 14 percent of all greenhouse gases are from Chinese coal. Now, is that because, you know, people in China are climate change deniers? No, they're not. I dare guess even uh, Chinese coal miners might not be climate change deniers. It's just that, what? I don't know how to fill in the blank there. So what I've studied is very much an American phenomenon. The, the, the book that I'm working on next, How to Talk to a Science Denier, is very much aimed at a Western audience. How to talk to American or British or Australian science deniers. It's odd, isn't it? The, the greatest concentration of science deniers are in English-speaking democracies. And by the way, a lot of the scientific disinformation in the U.S. that radicalizes science deniers comes from Russia and China. Because, you know, to create chaos in the beliefs of the Americans maybe serves their interest. And so one thing that I found in my research with science deniers is that and an enormous amount of climate change and anti-vax and anti-GMO propaganda comes from Russia and China. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. And I, I kind of have my own thought on maybe why people in Western countries are so kind of predisposed to climate denial. And my gut reaction is probably just kind of the individualism of our society, right? And, you know, you have a lot of people who deny because they know that if they don't deny, that means having to take a lot of major steps in their daily life and recycling and being so much more conscious and getting a new car and all these other things that include a lot of personal financial difficulties. Whereas in a place like Russia or China, for example, you're, you're probably not thinking about this uh, from an individualist standpoint, but from a statist, right? What's in the interest of my state? Yeah. And so they probably don't feel that the consequence is not immediately this massive personal guilt like it would be in our society. But I think that that may be part of it, but I think that it's important to remember that human cognition is the same the world over. We've all got the same cognitive biases and weaknesses. And that one thing that's happened, I mean, an important thing to remember about science denial is that it is created. It is manufactured. It's not just doubt that comes out of nowhere. It's doubt that is created by someone because it's in their self-interest to create doubt and to get people to believe it. And it's peddled to them cynically. And, 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 the, and the audience for that is the U.S. And so maybe it shouldn't be shocking that we have more science deniers here because we're, you know, the audience for that kind of, uh, of propaganda. There are, there are science deniers in other countries as well. I remember that um, Turkey has evolution denial, I think, in Turkey is even worse than it is in the United States. They're very high on climate denial as well. So, I mean, Brazil probably has a higher proportion of their population that are flat earthers than the United States. So there are pockets of science denial elsewhere in the world. But again, I think it's important to realize that science denial doesn't just come out of nowhere. It's, it's created by someone. I would even say that at this point, 
the making of a conspiracy theorist of a radicalized person is quite well oiled. That machine, it's, it's been tracked now that it starts small. You start, or you watch a video, you watch a news article, and then you get into a whole news source, and then it it grows and grows and grows, and it's it's a whole system now. That is that's also worrying when you think like, oh, you think it's just some fringe group of people, but you look closer, and there's quite quite a large group of them. And they're growing and you think like, oh, media literacy or, oh, like fact checking. But it, it always feels a little bit not enough now. Yeah, that's right. What One of the most interesting seminars that I went to at the Flat Earth International Conference was on how to recruit people into Flat Earth. And I took a ton of notes. And the interesting part of that was that they had it exactly right. The tactics for converting people's belief the same tactics that they used to convert people to flat earth are the same tactics I was trying to use to convert them out of flat earth. But the, <laughs> but the content of our beliefs were different. I mean, if you look what they did, how they did it, the tactics that they taught in that seminar, and they, of course, they didn't know I was sitting there. I was undercover the first day. They thought I was a flat earther. So, you know, they were just speaking very freely. It was shocking to me that they could be so rational and so with it on exactly how to appeal to people in just exactly the right way. I mean, they were sophisticated in the, in the engine of, of what they were doing. And some of the techniques that they were talking about were ones that I emulated. I mean, I sat there and I took notes and then I used those same techniques on them for the rest of the conference. Anybody who knows me knows that I'm just obsessed with civic education and uh, really how you make an environment from a very young age that would hopefully preclude a lot of what we're talking about. And so do you, I mean, do you have kind of, you know, your ideal solution to this in terms of education systems and how you see certain yeah. classes and courses, whether it be both obviously in young science education, but also in like civic yeah. education? I, I, yeah. I mean, education is not just for the young. I mean, there needs to be education for the adults who are gullible enough to believe some of this uh, as well. But in particular, when you talk about science education, I think the answer is yes, because I remember the way I was taught science. I was taught that scientists were geniuses who never made a mistake and discovered truth. And weren't we lucky to live in the era in which all truth had finally been discovered? And that's the wrong way to teach somebody science. That's science appreciation. That's not teaching us how to be scientists. Because in fact, scientists have a lot of failures and uncertainty along the way. And it's a very kind of a, a fits and starts process, which is why I wrote my book, The Scientific Attitude, because I think that what's actually distinctive about science is that scientists are willing to change their mind on the basis of evidence. And that's something that I think should really be emphasized in science education to get kids to think like scientists. We teach them the content of science, which is temporary. The content of science will be different, you know, within any kid's lifetime. What we should be teaching them is how to think like a scientist so that it's not just kind of, you know, clapping for what geniuses scientists have been, you know, Newton, Einstein, they discovered all these great things. But how did they do it? What was the process? To me, that's that's fascinating. And I think, again, the distinctive part of science. By the way, I think that that works for other things, too. I mean, I, I think that the antidote to post-truth is science. I think that understanding how scientists reason, being willing to change your beliefs when you've got better evidence, I think that, that you know, on an empirical topic, 
that is actually the, I think that's the, the way that we're going to get out of this. Uh, I'm, I'm writing something right now where I'm in fact making the argument that the way that you convert science deniers is the way that you convert people who have different beliefs than you in politics or anything else that you want as well. And if I understood correctly, does, does that mean we should also take that scientific approach when we approach like social, political, civic education from a young age as well? I mean, do we take that yeah. same approach over to that sphere? How does that Good. work? I mean, the part that scrambles that up a little bit is where it's not an empirical belief, but a values belief. Because science works very well on empirical topics. There's nothing better. If there's some fact about the world and you don't know it, and you want to find out what the answer is, science is going to get you there if anything will. When it's a values question, I'm, I'm not convinced that that's the exact same process. But I do know this, values are shot through in science. This whole idea that you couldn't be objective, that you would have to be biased, you know, in science if you had values is, is just not correct. Of course, there are values in science. The scientific attitude is itself a value. To say evidence can help us to differentiate truth from false belief, that's a value. To, to care about what your peers say, to be open and honest enough to share your work with other scientists so that they can fact check you, that's also a value. So yes, I think that the lessons that we learn from how scientists think can be useful in many different realms. I'm not completely convinced though that it will solve all of our disputes. I think that it's, it is still possible to have a values dispute where you agree on the facts, you just disagree on what it means. I'll give you an example. I'm not sure what I would, would be able to say to a climate, uh, to a person who didn't want to do anything about climate change, not because they were a climate denier, but because they said, yeah, climate change is real and we're causing it, but I want to make money and live in comfort now. I don't care about future generations. I care about my own comfort right now. Now, I disagree completely with that person's values, but what am I going to say to get them to care about something that they don't care about? That's, that's the real challenge. I'm kind of like struck by the overall atmosphere that we're in right now, especially with, with science definitely being a major factor in this, but also in your book, Post-Truth, you kind of approach the whole denials of truth in general. You define post-truth as a political subordination of reality, but what is this post-truth era that we're living in? Is it just disinformation? Is it ignorance? Uh, how, do, how did we get into this mess? I'm afraid my answer is that it was the next evolution from science denial. I've got an early chapter in Post-Truth where I argue that the blueprint or the roadmap of uh, Post-Truth was science was the success of 60 or 70 years of science, modern science denial, which started with the tobacco strategy in the 50s, where the tobacco companies found it in their interest to pretend that it was not really the case that cigarette smoking caused lung cancer and that nobody could really be sure about this. And they rode that wave of denial for you know the next 50 years selling cigarettes because they created a campaign of denial. Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway talk about that in their wonderful book, Merchants of Doubt. A lot of people find that laughable, but it was an enormous success. I mean, the cigarette companies made billions of dollars uh, on this. And so I think that somebody who looked at that and said, well, look, if you can deny the truth about whether cigarettes cause cancer, 
and you can deny the truth about evolution or climate change, you can deny the truth about anything. You can deny the truth about whether it was raining at Trump's inauguration speech. You can deny the truth about how many people were at his inauguration. You can deny the truth about whether the crime rate is going up or down. So you can deny any fact that you want if you're using that strategy. So we're not even talking about values now. We're talking about facts. And that's the really chilling part for me, because if you look at authoritarian governments, that is what they do. Their, uh, Jason Stanley's wonderful book, How Fascism Works, talks about getting control over information, truth. You know, that's what propaganda is for. Propaganda is not to try to convince you, it's to try to tell you who's boss. Let me put it this way. If you can get to a point where you don't have to convince people that there were more people at Trump's inauguration than Obama's, but you say it enough times that there's nothing that they can do about it, then you've won. And that's the chilling thing, because that's what a dictator wants. And a dictator wants not to have you believe the lie, but to be so powerful that they can lie and you can't do anything about it. That's when we're in real trouble. And that's why I wrote Post-Truth, because I saw the United States headed down that path. And we have not turned back from it yet. We're, we're quite far down that path right now. I think that the threat of authoritarian rule in the United States is dangerously close. I think there's a lot of overconfidence about the coming election. Because you know, if you look at how far we've fallen in a very short time, and if you look at similarly what happened in other democracies around the world that went down this same path, things happen very slowly and then they happen very quickly. And I don't think it would take that much more to tip us over to the point where it was possible for the government to not just lie to us, but to lie and to make policy and us to be able to do nothing about it. I mean, we're already quite far down that road, I'm afraid. And I'm I'm very worried about that. I, I wrote a paper to, there's this problem with academic publishing. I wrote a paper two years ago called Post-Truth and the Threat of Authoritarian Rule. And it's not published yet. It won't be published until after the election. Oh, no. Because this is what happens. Of course, now that I've turned it in, I can't get it back. I can't publish it elsewhere. But it's it's about this exact problem. Yeah, I, I just want to say immediately that everything you just said just jives with, for one thing, what's happening in Russia right now with regards to the poisoning of this opposition figure where the state propaganda is just trying to throw out as many versions as possible, as many different conspiracy theories, not stick to one most likely version, right? Or say that the, you know, the facts make this version more likely, but just throw out as many versions as possible. And it reminds me to precisely how Trump in his speeches and talks and comments has responded to the intelligence community's assessment of Russian interference in the US elections and how he responds and says, it's you no, know, no, it could have been China. It could have been Iran, you know, it could yeah. have been North Korea. There's a lot of people doing this. You know, so Here's the interesting thing. People laugh at that, but it works. People laugh at that and they say, why does he do it? He does it because it works. He wouldn't be doing it otherwise. Again, the, the point is not to convince you. The point is to show that he can say these outrageous things and get away with it. And he has. Has Trump really been held accountable for his lies? Has the Congress actually done anything? They impeached him, but they failed to remove him from office. And look at what's going on with the RNC right now. They don't even have a platform. 
It's an ode of fidelity to Trump. He has not been held accountable. I'm so curious, though, where you think this propensity to lie and engage in this kind of behavior kind of comes from. Does it, is it related to our culture in any way? Where, where do people learn it from? One of the most important books I ever read in my life is by Robert Trivers, and it's called The Folly of Fools. Robert Trivers is a world-famous uh, evolutionary biologist. He wrote about evolutionary psychology, basically the, you know, the, how evolution affects our brain and behavior. And he has a, a fascinating hypothesis in this book, which is that we lie to ourselves first. We, we lie to ourselves as a means of lying to others, because if you can lie to other people and get them to believe you, that gives you a selective advantage. So, you know, is, is, is truth selected for? Is, does truth have an evolutionary advantage? Uh, and I suppose you'd say, well, you know, of course, you know, if you say, oh, I doubt that's a tiger coming up to eat me and, you know, the denialist gets eaten. So, you know, what's the problem? Well, the thing is, most beliefs are not that kind of high stakes belief. Most beliefs involve persuading people that what you think is true is actually true because then you can get things from them. You can manipulate them and get them to do things that are in your interest. And Trivers makes the argument that this is why delusion is so common, because the best way to lie is to believe your own lie. And so earlier when I was saying that science deniers, this scientific disinformation is created, it is. But then sometimes the creators start to believe it. They start to believe their own lies because it's just so much easier. The, the cognitive dissonance goes away. It's easier to recruit other people. And you watch this happen in, in the political arena, too. I remember watching Karl Rove on election night when Romney was running against Obama, saying against all reason that when a few more votes came in in Ohio, Romney was going to win it in a landslide. And, you know, they, they walked him down to the basement of Fox News to look, you know, the statisticians talked to him and said, no, no, Obama's going to win. And Rove just would not believe it. I mean, here's a hard-boiled political operator who is in complete denial. And, and, you know, before I would have kind of thought, well, Karl Rove, he's just, he's just spinning. He's just cynical. He's just saying Romney's going to win because he wants him to win, but he knows. But no, he actually believed his lie. And, and that's, a, that's a very compelling thing. So I, I don't know. I mean, where does lying come from? Why do we do it? To some extent, it's, it's wired in, it, which is a chilling thing. I mean, there's a kind of a dark version of humanity and a lighter version of humanity. I, I'm not sure which is true, but I mean, I, I, I'm kind of a student of human nature. I like to read the literature on, on both sides. Um, I haven't read Humankind yet, which is supposed to be a very uh, a nice vision of, of humanity. There's a, there's a book by uh, Mercier and Sperber called uh, Why, Do we, Why Do We Reason? I think it's called. I can't remember the exact title, but it's... It's about this. It's about, you know, what's the evolutionary advantage of believing true things? And there's not that much advantage, as it turns out. It, it turns out that being a good liar has a lot of evolutionary advantage. Makes you wonder why we haven't had a demagogue as president before this. Wow, that was the perfect answer to my question. So thank you for that. I mean, I think you like more or less touched on all the questions I had. I think I think chilling is the right word. And I think you've explained a lot of the questions that have been swirling around my head since 2016, particularly in facing politicians, how they continue to support Trump. And like when he would lie, they would either deny it or sort of go with what he was saying. And 
at the back of your head, logically, you think, why Why would you go along with this? That That is a lie. And yet now there's power in numbers. Now, if you all have this united front between Trump's secretary, Kellyanne Conway, Mitch McConnell, it, it all makes a little bit more sense now. So I, yeah, thank you for that. I feel like something in my world makes sense. It's not good news. No, it, it's, it's not. <laughs> It's not good news. I mean, I, I can say a little bit more on the optimistic side if, if you want about, about what to do, because the, the, the pessimistic story is there's nothing we can do about this. You know, this is to people who have always been like this. They'll always be like this. And you read things like Leon Festinger's classic book, When Prophecy Fails, which is about this cult of people in the uh, 1950s who thought that the world was going to end and the aliens were going to come down in their UFO and rescue them and take them away before Armageddon. And the night of Armageddon came and the aliens didn't show up. And so you would think you'd give up that belief. But what happened was they decided, no, that the faith of their little group was so strong that they had saved humanity. So what can you do with people like this? And You know what you can do with people like that? Talk to them. That's the answer. The only answer is communication. When you put yourself in a silo of information, it alienates you from the criticism that you get of your beliefs from other people who disagree with you. And that's important. It's important in science. It's important in any sort of critical reasoning to have people who disagree with you trying to test your beliefs. I was just... I had lunch early because I was going to be on your show and I was watching a show I don't usually watch. And they had a focus group of women in North Carolina who were voters in kind of in Trump country. And three of them were white Trump supporters. And one was an African-American Democrat. She didn't say who she was supporting, I suppose Biden, but they were, you know, kind of focus group talking to them. And just within the time that they were talking, the Trump supporters were saying, you know, that they weren't racist and they didn't want to, you know, be disparaged and that they were they were angry because what they felt that Trump was really about was preserving what was important about America, preserving its traditions and protecting the, you know, the vision of America that they'd already had, you know, growing up, saving America. That's what it was about for them. The African-American woman spoke up and said, how far back do you want to go? What America do you want to save? Because I wasn't comfortable in the America of 10 years ago or 20 years ago, and certainly not 30 years ago. So you know, let me just ask you, when you talk about preserving our traditions and saving our heritage, what heritage are you talking about? And what was that like for people that aren't like you? That was a most wonderful question. And then after the focus group was over, the commentator said that that conversation had been so good amongst those four women that they had agreed to meet again on their own with no TV cameras and no commentators there to continue the conversation. And I thought, bingo, that's it. Talk to people who don't look like you, don't believe the same thing, et cetera, et cetera. And it will enlarge your point of view. My my own experience on this is that I didn't just go talk to flat earthers, I went to talk to coal miners thinking, well, they're going to be climate change deniers. They were not. I talked to three coal miners, all of whom believed in climate change. But all of a sudden, I could see from their point of view where they lived to feed their family, black lung, 40 years in the mines. What else were they going to do to feed their family? Who was coming to rescue them if coal went belly up? They felt that nobody cared about them. It wasn't that they 
didn't believe in climate change. It's that really my feeling was that they too were the victims of the coal industry. And it was a really important conversation for me to have because I come from a blue collar background, but nobody was a coal miner. And I never really would have had my perspective enlarged unless I'd spoken to those coal miners and realized these people are educated, they're sophisticated, they care about their families, they care about their health, but they were boxed in. There was nothing that they could do to save their their families or their communities except continue to dig coal. So my perspective was enlarged by talking to somebody that I didn't agree with. If anything saves us, I think that's going to be it. Have more conversations and get out of our silos. Wow, really important words all our listeners will appreciate. I think, as we touched on earlier, one of the challenges is just how. I mean, our our lives have become so siloed recently. It's, it's a challenge. I mean, people are people change their mind on the basis of a personal relationship with someone that they trust. That's how people, science deniers, change their mind. So pick out people that you know, friends and family, who already trust you. That's what I did. Talk to your aunt, who's an anti-vaxxer. Talk to your cousin, who's a climate change denier who already trusts you that's how to to begin to make a difference you know we're, we're all taught to be so polite and not talk about religion and politics at the table that's the perfect place to talk about it because it's over a meal when we're with somebody that we love and trust and respect that's when beliefs get changed I mean, I think that's a perfect note to end on. Lee, thank you so much for broadening our perspectives. I think the only appropriate thing to do now is to go start up some conversations. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University 